You're listening to the Unfree Parents Podcast, episode 055. You're seen to chat about life, family, and of course, Unfree's McGee. I'm Sarah Jahinia, podcast host, writer, mom of three, wife, and total Unfree. Are you prepared for what comes next? Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the show. I hope you were able to check out last week's episode, which featured my chat with fellow female umfreak Ashley. There is a link in the show notes where you can find that, as well as where you can find information about getting tickets for the Louisville after party at Gravely Brewing Company. That after party will feature Chris, Joel, and Marcus Rezac on August 23rd. Ashley talks about that after party in our conversation, so check that out if you haven't given it a listen. We are planning on going to the Louisville show this summer, so hopefully it works out that we can make the after party as well. Before we get into the meat of this week's show, I did want to announce that I have teamed up with Swift Charge. And if you were at summer camp, perhaps you saw their booths or maybe you used their service. And I did mention that I used their recharging batteries the entire festival. And I will say it was so nice to not have to worry about my phone dying over the weekend um, when I was trying to keep notes for the recap and of course doing my interviews. And if you don't know, Swift Charge, you purchase a battery pack and it suction cups to the back of your phone and then plugs in and your phone is charging while you rage. It's such an awesome idea and when the battery is dead, you just head to their booth and switch it out and the battery pack is yours. So I have mine, so next year when I go to summer camp, I have it and I can just exchange it and I have charging for the entire weekend. It's such an awesome service. Swift Charge will be providing portable charging. Yes, that includes for your vape pens as well at live music festivals throughout the summer. I know they will be at Electric Forest at the end of June, and they have a whole bunch of other festivals listed on their website as well. There is a link in the show notes where you can find that. And exclusively for my listeners, if you use promo code Sarah, S-A-R-A, at checkout, when you pre-order a charger for your next festival, you'll receive 10% off. That's promo code Sarah, S-A-R-A, at checkout, and you'll receive 10% off. All right, so let's get to it. This week... I am very, very excited to be bringing you my chat with Umphrey's lighting director, Jefferson Waffle. He was incredibly kind enough to sit down with me Sunday afternoon at summer camp after the Umphrey set, and we talked for about an hour, which was very, very cool. We did not talk about his departure from Umphrey's. That was announced only two days after him and I talked. So you can imagine my shock when I saw the news um, on Tuesday. And, you know, of course, we had just talked to each other. So I was like, oh, my God, what? 
Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Waffle will be leaving as lighting director at the end of 2019. And I know that we are all super sad to see him go, but there is no doubt very exciting new things around the corner for him. And I am looking forward to seeing who Umphreys hires and what they do with the band in the next coming years. And thank you to Jefferson for the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. Uh, shout out to Rob Turner for hooking this up. I am so grateful for all of his continued support for my show. And if you haven't checked out his show, Inside Out with Turner and Seth, definitely give that a listen. I know he has had Jefferson on his show, as well as Jake and Bayless, um, possibly Ryan, I'm not sure, um, but I will link all of his um, Umphreys-related episodes in the show notes. Um, and in addition to just a really great chat with Jefferson about a variety of topics, my interview features some cameos by Umphreys McGee manager Vince Iwinski, Mr. Joel Cummins, and former lighting director Adam Budney. So be sure to listen for those. And without further ado, here is my chat with Umphreys McGee lighting director Jefferson Waffle. Enjoy. So I'm here with Jefferson Waffle, lighting designer for Umphreys McGee. It is Sunday afternoon at summer camp after the Umphreys Sunday set. So first, I want to thank you for taking time after this whole weekend to be with me and you know sit down and chat. So thank you very much for that. Um, Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so let's start with the weekend. Um, what do you do to prepare for a festival like this? Well, there's there's a couple different angles. One of them is learning the music. So if there's any new covers or rarities or special guests, for example, the horns from Here Come the Mummies. Mm -hmm. Not that I would need to prepare for that. That's more of a, in a kind of the short term you prepare because you have to have, you know, from a practical standpoint, you would have to have lights set up in a different position for them, right. or, you know, because they're way off on the side. Um, but big picture, you're designing the rig. So I've been working with Ecto Productions, who's our vendor out of Chicago, and they provide lighting for this stage. And going back and forth with you know what works both from a design standpoint and also the limitations of any stage, weight limitations or whatnot. We tried to do something different this year with four square trusses, mm -hmm. and that puts different strains in different places that I'm not used to that you know because we've never done it before. So that was a challenge. But everyone kind of came together and, and pulled through, and uh, yeah, that that's the preparation somewhere around. Nice. So last night got rained out for you know anyone that's listening and future and doesn't know. Last night got rained out. So what happens when the rain starts to come down? Um, you know, as a crew standpoint, you know, how do you guys kind of progress from oh, it's raining to maybe we should definitely call this? Yeah, well, there's there's standards that you know our our production manager, the stage manager, the production manager from the festival, mm -hmm. and our management kind of all have to adhere to. But ultimately, it starts with Grant, who's the production manager for the stage that we're on, and he makes the call based on miles per hour and I 
it's not really my world, so I can't tell you, but I've seen the sheet before and it's, you know, in increments of 10 miles an hour, all the precautions that you need to take. You know, at first it's warn everyone, then it's, you know, batten down the hatches, then it's take cover. And I'm not sure where we got to last night, but at a certain point, which luckily coincided with right around where our separate was going to be. Right. The, the winds and also obviously lightning is a factor as well, I should right. point out. Both yeah. of those, and again, I'm not sure of the specifics, but both of those just kind of happened at the same time. And unfortunately, we weren't able to come back because of, you know, things like the curfew. We have, you know, it takes a certain amount of time, even if it had stopped. It takes a matter of time for our crew to get all of our gear mm -hmm. dry again. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, if you think about it, like a rain delay in baseball. They have right. to factor in like, okay, the grounds crew has to come out now. And, you know, some cities have different curfews. So at a certain point, you have to cut your losses. And unfortunately, right. we just ran out of time. Right. But they made up for it this afternoon, so Absolutely. I'm totally pleased it with it. It seems like every year, no matter what happens, it always is sunny on Sunday. Yeah. It's like so, magic, And right? it's always so, sunny so and like beating down on you too. Like there was one point where I'm like, oh, it's so hot, but at yeah, least it's, it's not cool. raining right now. But I, sound guards my shit. I had to go out there. I was cracking people in the head. Oh, nice uh, white wedding the other night. Thank you. That was, I was very impressed by that. That was very nice. I, uh, <laughs> I dusted, I, I dusted, I haven't done that in like 12 years. That was, yeah, it was very nice. It was nice. actually a bigger bust out than funny story about Outshine. They were supposed to play it last night in the second set. Yeah. Brendan texted me the set list earlier in the day and I saw Outshine and I said, this is just like a stupid pun that right, right. kind of the dynamic I have with these guys. Your, your humor. Yeah, my humor. And I said, oh, it'd be funny if you played it during the day, but probably only to me. And he goes, yeah, kind of like, yeah, it would only be funny to you. And then they put it on the set list today. So I saw him and I said, hey, that's funny, man. <laughs> Joke's on somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully Chris Cornell heard that and enjoyed it. Right. I'm sure he did. It was a very nice, uh, very nice tribute to him. That was uh, sure. Vince Iwinski, band manager for people out there. Yeah. Was a nice yeah. impromptu. And that was, I decided to stay up and go to Fate Night the other night and pleasantly surprised by his rendition of White Wedding by Billy Idol. Oh, I didn't even know that that happened. It blew me away. I mean, I was standing there and I'm like, okay, I guess that I'm being completely blown away by this right now. Who knew? <laughs> it's very good. It's totally worth staying up until 4 o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. For. Absolutely. All right, so let's switch gears here and talk about the Anchor Drop films that you have been bringing out. Um, first, let's talk about whose idea that project was, how it kind of came together. Can you tell us that? Sure. Well, it always originates with Kevin. Yeah. And, you know, he's we just, we just saw Vince. Uh, Kevin is also one of the managers, but he handles a lot of the creative side. And so Kevin came to me, and this is what typically, the same thing happened with Real to Real. Kevin comes to me with an idea, mm -hmm. and then I go, oh, well, it's great, but let's do it bigger. And, you know, because mm -hmm. it's hard for me to do a project any way other than, like, you know, giving 110%. Yeah, and I'm not like that in, yeah. in every area of life. You know, I'm not like my fiance would tell you, but when it comes to like my creative projects, I just can't help myself. It's like a sickness. Yeah. I mean, not with a negative connotation, but right. I just, you just put your whole heart into something that yeah, you're working like, on. Yeah. Like, I'm always updating the positions of the lights during the show. If I know my eye picks up something that's not perfectly aligned or symmetrical the way I, I want it to be, and I do it even on the last song of the last set, just during Outshine, and I don't even realize it until I catch myself, right. and I take you myself out of the moment. I say. Line. 
stop working and enjoy it because no one's going to notice that. Um, but anyway, not to get off on a tangent, but Kevin came to me and said, let's do eight, eight of these little vignettes to promote the 15th anniversary of Anchor Drums. And I was thinking about how I would break up these eight you know, segments or episodes. And I volunteered to do more because it was easier for me to conceptualize one song per episode. Instead of trying to figure out, okay, there's 13 or whatever tracks in the album, how are we going to break up these eight stories? It was easier for me to just say one-to-one, everything, and we'll come up with, we'll come up with the visuals. And that was something that I learned, uh, it was a, a big lesson I learned since doing Real to Real. Right. Um, my background is in journalism, but I had never really done a documentary. And I mean, it's similar, right. but there's obviously nuance to it and differences. So the biggest thing was we had all this footage for Real to Real, and my philosophy, and I remember saying this to Kevin, was let's find the best footage we have because a lot of the footage is shit. No offense to those guys, but like the technology wasn't good back then. Right. It's not like iPhones. Right. A lot of it just was dark and you can't use it. So yeah. we'd go through and just get rid of. Because for me, it was like whittling it down. I had like over a terabyte of footage. Right. And so I was just getting rid of as much as I could. And like, okay, this one has a lot of light because there's sunlight coming in the window and the van or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after we did that, it was like, okay, let's try to find a story. But since then, I've learned by watching a lot of other documentaries and, and just kind of taking mental notes, uh, that's backwards. It, it should always start with the story. And then you find the visuals to match because you can always find a photo of somebody looking out a window that like matches a sad moment. Right. You know, you pick that up. Yeah. And it's like they, they're just showing a photo of him sneezing, and yeah. they're trying to make it seem like he's sad. Or I don't know. Yeah. I these little no, things. that makes sense. We're um, all about the story. Like I, I watch every documentary on Netflix I can find, mm-hmm. and it's always you know like the three identical strangers, you know, or the or the bank pizza bomber or whatever. It's these stories right. that you're like, oh my god, you want to go tell your friend? Did you hear about the story? These three guys. Right. Not to spoil anything. But so so now, you know, five years later after doing Real to Real, it was okay. Let's find whoever wrote the song and ask them for their best story of like what do the lyrics mean or. And this is the other angle was I was trying not to repeat anything that happened to also be in Real to Real. Right. So Plunger, for example, we had already done a whole scene about that. Right. So we had to try to find other stories. Uh, same with Tinkles. Mm-hmm. We had already told the story of what it meant, mm-hmm. and, and this time it was let's concentrate on the music. Which that was very cool. I personally love every single one of them. I think it's, oh, sure. it's very cool. But I like I nerd out on all that stuff anyways. I just I, I love it. I think you've done such a fantastic job on them. Um, is there any plans to release them like as a whole and and put them out as, as you know kind of a whole thing? That I don't know. That's that's definitely a Kevin question. Um, there's so many different platforms out there now that I've kind of lost track you know every time you think you've got it kind of figured out six months later the entire landscape has changed so with all the streaming services and I'm not even really sure which one is the future now Apple has a streaming service that's coming out or not even they already obviously have streaming but they have their own shows that they're producing yeah they're doing their own thing and then I know like even like Disney Channel is going to do like their own streaming like whole thing so yeah so like if if Apple wanted to host it I would be okay with that yeah that'd be cool (laughs) let's put it out there let's let's get because I know a lot of people would like to see it like you know as a whole It's, it's really interesting to hear you know the different sides of the song and you know where they were when they were writing them and it's very very cool thing 
So what are we at? We're on number six? And you said there's eight of them? No, the, originally there was going to be eight, but, okay. but now there's going to be, I believe, 13? 13. 13, okay. Is that, I think I should really know off the top of my head how many tracks. tracks there are, I but think I, there is. We're, we were talking about this last night during the rain delay, Kevin and I, like, if we're going to treat Jajunk part one as its own episode and part two as a different one, and I thought that that was kind of silly, so I'm thinking, mm. and I should probably figure it out because it's due in two days. <laughs> I do them each week. It's not like we have them all ready oh, to go. Oh, already. Wow. Okay. It's just yeah, I the way my life is. Like bang no, in. it takes so many hours that I just do it as right. as it comes. Yeah. You know, and, like, and sometimes it's maybe like better that way because when I know for me, when I do like episodes ahead of time, there's always something that I wind up going back and like re-recording or something I want to add. So then you're just doing more work. You're doing more than you needed to than just... A very good friend of mine, uh, Clayton Halsey, who taught me most of what I know as an editor, he has a saying that I think about all the time, and it's, you never finish editing. You just run out of time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that that's, goes back to what I was saying earlier about just always wanting to make everything perfect. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it in a nutshell. Because if it's due, you know, Tuesday, we, we had to make an arbitrary deadline for me because Kevin needs to view it and make sure that you know the content he, is, he fa- first of all he fact checks it because he was there right i wasn't around in the, those days right so he fact checks it he also has to make a decision you know if there's anything and this doesn't happen very often but if there's anything borderline we're not sure if a band member is going to want that included right kevin makes that call and if right. he needs to literally check with the band member he's kind of like the liaison for that right so that takes at least a day yeah. So we have to kind of make this arbitrary deadline, and then every time it's like, okay, I got you this, but I'm going to work through the night and give you a better one in the morning. So like he checks everything 24 hours before it gets posted, but then I'm still making changes up to the last minute wow. if I need to, just because my OCD like forces me to. Yeah, and but the funny thing is, is you would never be able to tell, you know, like the products that we see when they when they post it, it's you would not be able to tell that it was like you know last minute edit, quick before you do it. It's they're they're very nicely done. Thank very you. Nicely done. Um, so, can you tell me which? Do you have like a favorite song that was yours to you know kind of make the part about? Is there like a particular for video? Yeah. For this particular yeah, series. Yeah. For this the series. I feel like plunger because first of all there is so much content. We're drawing from a lot of the you know a lot of the original footage that Ryan and Kevin shot. They each had, I don't know if they were matching, but they each had, you know, state of the art at the time in 2002 mm-hmm. or whatever it was, these little camcorders. And uh, they just kind of arbitrarily turned it on more during certain songs. I think everyone was really excited about Plunger because it was, I assume, kind of cutting edge when it came out. Were you around back then? Were you a fan? I, no, I did not get into Umphreys until 2007. Okay. So. My, and again, I, I'm not a historian, but based on everything that I've kind of experienced, with real thrill in this it to me it seems like you know chris had joined the band so now he's mm-hmm. this is the first time he has had a role in the studio recording mm-hmm. which is a big deal because when he first joined and you're playing someone else's parts that's that's the way mikey had interpreted the music right which is great in its own right but everyone has their own personal flair so right. it's it's different it's like playing a cover versus a song that you had yeah. original input in its writing so and it was right in the wheelhouse that, you know, Chris and Jake bring more of that, like, hard edge, metal mm-hmm. edge. I mean, Ryan, too. 
but it was like right in both their wheelhouses, and I just feel like it was the right time, right place, um, and also, of course, the poignant meaning of the lyrics with yeah. Chris uh, joining and, and Mikey just leaving. So mm-hmm. um, that was probably my favorite, and it was also such a challenge, just because again, we had already done an entire scene about it in real to real, and I know that there's not a lot of people out here that you know. Maybe there's a hundred people that saw both. I'm one of the. I don't, I don't know how to track. <laughs> I love real to real. I think it's a fantastic documentary. It really is. Thank you, but I, I I think about that a lot because it's you need to know who your audience is, and, and I often wonder like five years ago we did four screenings and you know you could stream it, but I don't know how many of those people are you know on Instagram or on YouTube watching the current ones, so I don't know how much of the backstory to tell. It's always kind of this mm-hmm. this struggle of like who is the the common person watching this and what is their knowledge. And I usually think of my own like mom as an example because she is a casual Umphreys fan but a huge music fan. Mm-hmm. She supports Umphreys because she supports me and she comes to the show and she enjoys it. But she probably couldn't name any of the songs. Right. But she loved I mean she comes and she's like, Oh that was great. But I always think like, will she understand the story? Right. And that's, that's a, a good parameter. Good, yeah, yeah. Because I think about that too, like when I'm doing episodes and, you know, like if I'm talking about like a song that was covered or, you know, kind of like the history of a song I like to include in, in there. And sometimes I'm like, well, do I really, like how much do I want to go into this because, you know, like what do people already know and I don't want to sound like you're repeating yourself, you know, and sound redundant. So I totally I understand about that too. Um, okay, so let's switch directions again. Um, tell me, what is your favorite room to do the lighting in? I think it's changed over the years. I used to say the Taft Theater in Cincinnati, and I still love the Taft, nothing, okay. nothing against it, but we've, we've been lucky enough to play in a lot of bigger and just other rooms since I originally said that years ago. And, Again, that's still one of the best theaters, just because of the uh, the large dimensions. Um, but now I would say, like you know, the Fox in Oakland, the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, both of those I mentioned because they they have in-house lights, lighting fixtures that are the same ones that we tour with, uh, Mac Threes and Auras and even Sharpies, which we don't really tour with anymore, but we used them this weekend. So it's very easy for us to add our own lights and integrate our system and clone everything in. Cloning is a, a term that I think is pretty self-explanatory, right? We, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's much more compatible when you're using the same fixture types. Right, right. And that's kind of rare that a, that a venue would have that quality. Right. There's not a lot of venues that have that kind of top of the line. Um, those pictures are now a little bit out of date, but you know, in the last 10 years, they were they were pretty state of the art at the time. So, those are probably my favorite. I love outdoor venues um, if the conditions are perfect, but it's yeah. very rare that the wind and the rain and you know the dust all cooperate. All cooperate and make it good. And that's something that has changed since I was going to shows as a fan versus working as an LD. Mm-hmm. When I was a fan, I didn't really notice those little details. Right. And I kind of wish I could go back to that you know, blissful ignorance. Right, right. But I don't think I ever can. And now at an outdoor show, I'm like, oh, the the haze isn't perfect. And so the beams of light are incomplete. And, mm-hmm. you know, now it's raining and now it's muddy. And, yeah. But 
as a fan, I used to love just being outdoors and the freedom right. of your hair and the wind or whatever. So, right. um, you know, your perspective changes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How much, like, say do you have in picking a new venue because you are the lighting director so like oh. how much of a of a say when they're like okay well we're gonna play this venue for the first time do you like come into the meeting and are like well maybe I don't want to really work in that room that doesn't ever happen okay um, okay the my impression of the way it happens is Joel sits in on a lot of the calls okay. with Kevin and Vince and our um, our agent who is uh, Pincus, okay. who is a great guy. And he's exactly what you would envision an agent being. Mm -hmm. And I say that with all love. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I think that the four of them take into account a number of factors, um, mostly things that I don't know, really know about, but it obviously right. has to do with numbers and the markets and the strategy of how long it's been since we were there. And if we have a festival offer, and then there's a radiance clause Radius, sorry, Radiance is a type of hazer, so that's kind of a one-track mind. Uh, the Radius Clause, so for okay. example, this year we're playing High Sierra, Okay. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I get confused sometimes. I'm sure there's so many like things so, and places to remember. I'm sure it's, it's hard for you to keep track of. You're like, yeah. where am I going? So we haven't done High Sierra in a number of years, mm -hmm. but obviously we love High Sierra. Everyone loves High Sierra, so yeah. most festivals don't want to have a band like Humphreys come back too often because then it becomes, you know, summer camp is obviously our, yeah. partly our festival. Thing, yeah. But a festival like that, or, you know, Bonnaroo, for a while Bonnaroo was like every other year, and, mm -hmm. and now I think it's a little bit longer just because people try to do different things. So for us to go back to High Sierra, that kind of changes the whole routing because now we have to do other shows around there to make the, you know, to offset the cost of getting our gear out there and us flying out there. There's just so many factors involved. So. Mm -hmm. I don't think the lighting is really um, yeah. much of a factor, although they do take it into account, I'm sure, with you know festival offers. You know, we always try to play as late as we can, right. but a lot of times that's dictated by you know Get schedule. Yeah, and, you know, how big of a headliner are, and, are you yeah. at the festival? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what is your favorite Umphrey song to do lights for? Historically, it's always been Ocean Billy. Yeah, yeah. And. Uh, Again, this is, goes back to what I was saying before about not knowing how many people know the backstory because I've told this story a lot of times, mm -hmm. so I don't want to bore your audience. But if you don't know, <laughs> no, the, go ahead, please. In a nutshell, the the Reader's Digest version is that uh, I was on Jam Cruise as a fan back when I was ignorant and blissful. Yeah. And uh, and I was with Rob Turner, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And uh, Umphrey's played Ocean Billy. I think it was pretty new at the time. And I just had this vision in my head of, you know, blue and red, and you know, I was, my my mind was probably expanded a little bit. Hey, Joel. Hi. Hi how are you? I'm actually taking off. But good to see you this yeah, weekend. Likewise, have a good lunch. Yeah, I was just telling her about the first time I heard Ocean Billy. Yeah. You know not, that story. Not a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> it was on Jam Cruise. Right. On the ocean. Yeah. On the ocean, sunrise. It was the whole, the whole thing. Uh, no, you were the headlining slot. Okay, nice. I think. That, I remember that was the, you know, it's funny, you're going back and forth, but because everybody's going back and forth, you don't feel as weird. Right. And the boat was swaying in like yeah. seven. <laughs> yeah, somehow. <laughs> Amazing. See you guys. See ya. Take care.
so I had this vision in my head, and uh, again, not to say anything bad about Adam Budney, who was just standing here, one of mm-hmm. one of my best friends. He's he's amazing, but not to take anything. He was doing something again in his wheelhouse, like right. the way he was interpreting, interpreting it, and yeah. I don't even remember what it was, and I don't even remember why I had that thought in my head because I didn't have any intention of ever working front freeze at the time. Right. And I didn't have that vision with any other song. Right. And it wasn't even that grand of a vision. It was basically just they were counting it or I was counting it in seven. That's why I made that joke to yeah. to Joel just now. And I think years later we determined when I, I we were doing some kind of a tutorial at do you remember those camps we did? in New York yep. summer, summer school summer school yep. thank you and I was doing yep. a lighting workshop and I was explaining the same story and I I counted the way that I was interpreting it and yeah. I, I think it was it was wrong but Stasek counts it the way I count it so we're both counting it wrong and we're both doing it correctly so it's just okay. it's one of those nuanced things that our, our drummer Chris and Jake and I'm sure most of the guys could explain better than I could right but as long as the end result is correct. Right, yeah. As long so, as you both get to the same place, it's... I don't think it's actually in seven. I think I count it in seven, and it's in six and two and three or something. Anyway. So... Ocean do, Billy. Do you have any, like, history in music at all? Only as a... Uh, only as, as a... As a... I mean, I played all the instruments, but only as, like, a hobby. Okay. You know, like, I, it was always in my home. My dad plays guitar. Okay. I always had a guitar leaning up against the wall in the corner my whole life okay but I was never like I never committed to it they always say you have to put in 10,000 hours right and I put in my 10,000 hours to video and my 10,000 hours to lighting and maybe I got to like maybe I'm around like 8,000 hours on guitar yeah I'm okay I'll get there yeah (laughs) when you have some free time yeah (laughs) I mean I can play everything I just don't like rip solos right but like I can learn anything that's my so background. Someday we'll get, we'll get a waffle sit-in, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> um, so when Umphreys is going to debut a new song that they've, they've written, they're going to debut it, what is the process of, I mean, so obviously with like Ocean Billy or a song that's been around a while, there's probably like a typical sort of like thing that you do. So when it comes to a new song, like how does that process go? to be ready to light a new song when they debut it? Well, it depends. Lately, I feel like maybe more than once, maybe the last couple albums, they've not played any of the songs until the album came out, so they had like the entire album worth of content released at once. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering that correctly? Mm-hmm. I, I lost track with all yeah. the It's You, It's Us, It's Not You, It's Us. I, yeah. There was like three versions, right? The B-sides. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, in a situation like that, it's a little bit daunting because it's like, here are 10 or 12 new songs, go. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was funny because, talk about like, you know, being nervous and on the spot. Like, we did an event at the Park West where I think the band played a set, or maybe they did, and again, I'm not remembering this correctly, but they did some kind of thing, and then afterwards they just played the album. It was yep. a listening party. Yep. And I ran, they wanted me to run lights for it. So I had to like, try to learn all the songs and then run lights for the first time without a band. Because when the band's on stage, you can watch them and kind of have a visual cue the mm-hmm. way that you would watch a conductor if you're in an orchestra. Right. So I watched 
either Jake or whoever's soloing you watch and then they cue Chris the drummer and then he cues things so we're all in sync but to do all these songs for the first time without having the visual aid and to have all six band members watching <laughs> not that yeah. they were because they were signing stuff and everyone's socializing but they were watching more than they normally do because right. normally they're facing the other direction yeah um, so that was probably not my most accurate set because that's a, to learn all that at once right. but normally to get back to your question normally it's just a new song one and that's very easy because they play it a bunch of times at sound check I mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go sit in in the rehearsal room and it usually comes pretty quickly in my head I just say okay here's the chorus um, and sometimes Chris or Brendan will have something that they'll suggest but that doesn't happen very often and when it does happen I, I welcome it like I love having yeah. that direction because I don't normally yeah and well, it's always very vague too it's always yeah. like hey this is I was thinking of a stop cue here right and a couple times it's happened and I said oh I was thinking the same thing so like we were on the same page That's very what is one venue that you've not worked in yet that you would like to for. Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I bet. I mean, that's the one that you hear most LDs say was one of their biggest moments. Mm -hmm. You know, LDs that have done it in the past. Mm -hmm. And and that's one that I just, I haven't had the chance. I, I feel like I'll get there someday, you know. It might not be headlining. It may be as part of some event or right. maybe it'll be a sporting event. You know, there's lots of ways to yeah, get there. Yeah, you never know. You never know. So maybe I'll do paths. Disney on Ice or... <laughs> Yeah. I know people that you do that. Know. It's a great yeah. thing. Yeah, for sure. You never know. Um, all right, so let's take it back. Let's get into your history. Um, my friend Sharon Steinberg wanted me to say hello to you. I've known her for 25 yeah. years, I think. She did say that. She is actually a member of the Unfreak um, Parents group on Facebook. So um, when I told her that I was interviewing you, she said, Say hey. So passing that along for her. Um, she did tell Sharon. me that she's she's so sweet. She's such a nice woman. Um, she did tell me that you had a radio show back in college called Space Jam. So talk about that. Wow, from the archive. Yeah, she uh, took me way back. <laughs> well, it was Space Jam. Okay. All right. And uh, it was before Michael Jordan's movie called Space Jam. Okay. So now it sounds like the epitome of cliche. Yeah. But again, this was before anyone used the term jam band, really. And okay. if people were using that term, it was not in the public vernacular, as far as I know, because um, a gentleman I worked with for many years, Dean Budnick, had written a book called Jam Bands and started the website jambands.com as a way to promote the book. Okay. I was, I think, one of the first hires, and I did the daily news for jam bands. And that's when the term started to get used more because other you know, there's limited places on the web in 1996 mm -hmm. or 1997. Um, there was our good friend Andy Gadiel had started Jam Base. Mm -hmm. And so the term started bubbling up, but uh, it wasn't the way it became over the next 20 years. There was no Coachella, there was no Bonnaroo. Actually, I think there was Coachella. Wrong genre. There was no Bonnaroo yet. Mm -hmm. I think Gathering of the Vibes had just started and it was maybe in the first year or two, right? Because right, Jerry died in 95, and that's when they started yep. probably the following year. Yeah. So there was a show there prior to me called Psychedelic Crunch. Again, okay. we were coming up with ways of describing this music. Right. Improvisational rock was another way I described it. Um, 
So I would go in on Sundays, and I wanted to get on the air so badly, and I didn't get on my first year at Emerson. And that was a real kind of reality check because I had come from Fitchburg State, where I had been kind of a big fish in a small pond. There was no real broadcasting program there. Mm-hmm. And I you know, worked at television stations and radio stations in high school, and so I had a lot of experience and so I had a very easy time. It was kind of like, whatever you want to do, here are the keys to the TV and radio station because nobody else really cares. And then I got to Emerson, and these were all the hotshot broadcasters from all around the country. So I didn't get on the air, and I was like devastated. Yeah. And so I went, and I, I was a producer on a blues show, and I, I worked with an amazing guy named Jack. And, uh, you know, thank God, I, that's, I saw the, the Derek Trucks band when he was 16. Like, came in and played on the blue show Wow! and it, you know I got my foot in the door and then eventually the girl who was doing psychedelic crunch was going to graduate and they said if you come in on Sundays over the summer to fill in like we need someone to fill in nobody else like everyone's on vacation it's like the least competitive time of the year but the you know it's a big radio station WRS in Boston and so it stayed on you know year-round they had a lot of listeners and I said hell yeah like I'll volunteer over the summer when everyone else is at yeah. the beach and it wasn't every Sunday it was like you know four or five Sundays over the course of the summer when she was on vacation and so I did that all summer and I had a blast and uh, and then she graduated and I got the show and I did it for two years and the thing that was so great about it and just again right time right place was they had a giant space that they converted into a recording studio and they had top-of-the-line gear so these bands would come through and we could record them live and it sounded like studio quality. I mean, they're in a soundproof studio with multi-track DAT recorders. And so I would have these jam bands come through like Strange Folk and Percy Hill and Mo. That's where I first met Mo. Wow. They did an acoustic set in there. String Cheese did an acoustic set. Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones. Wow. Uh, Aquarium Rescue Unit. I mean, at the time these were like these were big bands. These were the only bands that yeah. really were in our scene. I mean, there were the Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler, but they were a little bit... Kusakuka, don't forget them. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Big Woo Family as well, yeah. or whatever that was. Big Woo. Yep. Yeah, those, were the two, those were the two Memorial Day weekend like festivals before any festivals, right? Like this and those two, and there wasn't Bonnaroo or anything like that? Well, there was the, we were saying the Gathering of the Vibes was just starting yes. to. Mm-hmm. It started as like Gathering of the Tribes, or my... This is way... Too long ago. It may have. Don't quote me on that. I don't know either. Okay. <laughs> Where were we? Um. We were talking about the festivals. Yes. You were talking about. I was like listening to what he was saying, and I lost my train of thought too. <laughs> um. Space Jam. Yes. You were talking about the bands at the time. Right. So they would just. It was convenient routing-wise because a lot of bands are driving around the Northeast. Wetlands Preserve in New York was one of the, you know, places where all these jam bands would play. Did you ever see any shows there? Oh yeah, tons. Oh, that's awesome. Because my first experience as a lighting designer was when I managed a band called Uncle Sammy. Okay. And we would play at the Wetlands in the basement a lot. I think we we definitely played on the main stage. We headlined the main stage a few times. But that wasn't until you, you know, a few years later. The first couple times was in the basement, and it was an amazing experience. So there was lots of bands driving through town on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and so they didn't have any other radio stations that were reaching that many people and wanted to play yeah. their music. It was right. kind of rare. So 
it was mutually beneficial. You know, I, that's where I met most of the people that I'm still friends with. You know, yeah. I was lucky enough to be in a position to expose their music, and they were like, "Oh, this is a great opportunity for us." So they got something out of it, and it, we all appreciated each other. You know what I mean? Right. Everyone wins. Built this, everyone like, wins. This friendship and, yeah. and did this whole thing. It's very cool. So let's talk about you going from that, and you said you know you were doing journalism and everything so going from that to lighting and you worked for Mo for a couple of years as their lighting five, director yeah. for five years which is when I started getting into Mo was when you worked for them um, and then you went over to Umphreys and that's when I followed so maybe it's you maybe it's you I'm following I don't know um, so talk about working for Mo how did that come about and then like you said you worked for them for five years so talk about how you started working for them so I was doing lights for Uncle Sammy and I remember there were some other bands that had lighting designers who had purchased lights like they had invested thousands of dollars in in lighting systems mm -hmm. and then would rent their gear to you know like start their own companies and rent their gear and make their money back right makes business like great business sense mm -hmm. I didn't have the capital to do that so I remember thinking like I kind of hit a ceiling with Uncle Sammy because they're a small band playing mostly bars wetlands was a, on the big side um, but I don't have any capital to invest like a hundred thousand dollars in the lighting system right so I love this craft and I love the creativity but we're kind of we're at the venue we go into whatever they have we have to use we can't like bring in our own gear which is it's a big step for a band when you can start carrying your own production. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, I love lighting, but like someday I would love to work for a band that like carries their own gear, rents their own gear, has their own truck, has tour buses. And it was one of those. I had a conversation with a friend, and the friend was friends with Topper, their manager, and mm -hmm. it was like, be careful what you wish for, because I had the conversation with him on the phone, and the next day he was having a conversation with Topper, and Topper was looking for a light guy, and this guy recommended me, and it was just one of those flukes. That's so cool. And I didn't really want to do it. I didn't. I wasn't sure I wanted to like make this big lifestyle change and just go tour a hundred nights a year. Right. Because it was. It's not a hundred nights a year. It's like, you know, both Humphreys and Mo. I think at the time, anyway, it was like right around ninety or ninety-five shows a year. But when you add in all the travel days, it's it's at right. least double that. So yeah. it's, a, it's a major yeah. lifestyle change going from no traveling to. Yeah, traveling a lot. So I, it was just it all happened so quickly, and I remember having the conversation with Topper and. And he said, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta come out to Vegas. Or, you know, I had a tryout in, uh, right outside Syracuse, which is really weird, because I'm, I was born in Syracuse. Oh, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was, I was born in Syracuse. My first word was light. Really? A, like, really? It's a true story, yep. That's very cool. And, and so that's where my tryout was. It was at a roller skating rink. And again, I'm blanking on the name, but, you know, right outside Syracuse. And I'm sure somebody will correct me. <laughs> somebody, else, somebody else email in the show. And so it was two nights. That was my tryout. And I, I got the gig. And then Topper said, yeah, we need you to come out to, to Vegas if you, if you get it. This was before I knew if I tried out, if I was going to get it or not. And I said, well, I just want to see if I'm going to get it. I don't know if I'm going to do Vegas. And he goes, no, dude, you can't waste our time. Like, if you get it, you have to come. Like, we're not just giving you a tryout for the right. sake of it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man. Because then I made it real. And I wasn't sure I wanted to, like, just never been on a tour bus you know I yeah just to jump in at that level is a little bit daunting yeah because most sure. people come up through the ranks ride the band for like umphreys they did it organically they rode in a band right. for 10 years and then they 
Right. They, they like build together. up to it, so they were like preparing for right. it. Whereas you, you're just jumping. I in skipped full a lot of. And... I skipped a lot of levels. Yeah. Um, you know, Uncle Sammy spent a lot of time in a van, but I was the manager, so I stayed at home in the home office. I wasn't the tour manager. In the early days, I was. Um, so yeah, so that was an amazing experience. I, I wish that I was better prepared for a lot of the non-creative aspects. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess there's just really no way to do that without just learning on the job. I guess I could yeah. have gone to like theater school, yeah. but that was not the path that I chose at the time. Right. So I had to kind of learn a lot of the etiquette and a lot of the um, planning side of things. And, you know, there's a, the whole sort of etiquette of when you're working with union crews that I just, I had no idea of, or like, what a dark stage is. Mm-hmm. Do you know what a dark stage is? No. So when you work in union houses, they pick times throughout the day that, you know, usually in hour increments where it's dark stage. Sometimes there's one at lunch, sometimes there's one at dinner, sometimes both, and okay. you can't do any work. Okay. And it's basically to like guarantee that the union gets their break, I think. I'm not really okay. sure about the details, but I just okay. know it's very strict. You can't do anything. Okay. So we're at Radio City Music Hall, for example. Mm-hmm. That's that's a play, That's a great example of a... I was there with Mo twice, mm-hmm. and you're rushing to get done by the time doors open, and you have a finite amount of time, like eight hours or whatever, and then like an hour before doors, they're like, all right, you have to stop. And so that's like a great example of like, I just yeah. didn't know, so I hadn't, in my head, I hadn't uh, accounted for it. Yeah. And I still don't really understand why I assume it's because, again, they need to ensure that they right. have, you know, workers' rights, which I support, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> but absolutely. those are like those, those little nuances. The little things that you don't realize until you're part of it, which like for me, like with the podcast, I have zero experience in radio. You know, like I, everything I've learned in the past year was totally hands-on. And But I honestly think you learn more that way because you messed up and you had to fix the mistakes you're like well I'm not doing that again (laughs) you know like you're like yeah definitely not that so you remember it more than I think going into like a school setting you know where they're just kind of like teaching at you like I learn way better hands-on anyway so that's that's kind of the only way I can learn is is hands-on absolutely so Mo you know gave me this great opportunity and I yeah I'm glad that they stuck with me when I really had no idea what I was doing and I kind of just was forced to learn on the job and I, I think, you know, the only reason I got the gig was because of my, you know, limited background in music. I was able to intuit where the, you know, the big improvisational peaks and valleys were going to be because that's like a universal language, not to sound hokey, but, you know, to me, the jamming was no different than jamming alongside of Uncle Sammy or right. alongside my dad when I was eight years old playing a tambourine to Neil Young down by the river or whatever. Right. Um, so. I think I got the job because I, I know the music well, right. and I was able to intuit, and, right. and same with Humphreys. But all the other stuff I was clueless with, and so it was, it was kind of an uphill battle to kind of learn on the job. Yeah. So talk about your switch into uh, working for Humphreys. You started working for them in 2008, I believe. So how did the, how did the switch ha- happen? How did that kind of go? Uh, well, Mo. Hi. Hey. Mo decided to take a hiatus, and oh, so yeah. they they told us, I believe, in like March of that year. And I remember them sitting us down and saying, you know, we've never taken a break, and we don't know how it's going to feel, but it'll be at least six months, and you know, we're probably coming back, but we don't know because we don't know how we're going to feel. Mm-hmm. And so 
we were all kind of like we had a six or eight month window to basically find other work in the interim. Yeah. And just coincidentally during that break was when uh, Umphreys was looking for a temporary substitute. You know, that's redundant, but they were looking for a sub for a few dates. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was happy to, to jump in and help. And I remember there being an, an immediate chemistry. And, you know, it obviously being similar, like to an outsider, Mo and Umphreys probably sound similar, but obviously to mm-hmm. people like us, right. there's, there's a lot of difference. And so, yeah. again, you know, I, I felt very compatible following the improv, but I also noticed that there was a lot more notes and a lot more, um, more of a metal edge, obviously. Mm-hmm. I think Mo comes from more of a Grateful Dead background. Yeah. These guys have varied backgrounds, but you know, half the band has like a metal background. Yeah. And so there's a lot more testosterone and I had to learn how to interpret the jamming differently because with, with Mo, if you, if you look at like a set, I think on average I would, you know, follow Chuck solos, and Chuck would take a lot of the big ripping solos. Not not to say that Al doesn't, but right. for some reason I just associate Chuck with the big, you know, set closing. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this is. I love Al. I, I don't know why I'm saying that, but I <laughs> I remember following Chuck the way that I followed Jake, and when he would go to these like shredding peaks, I would go to the strobes. That was the way I would interpret it. And, and when I started working for Umphreys, Umphreys, I realized that I can't do that because those moments happen more frequently. Mm-hmm. So with with Mo, it would be once or twice a set. And with Umphreys, I was noticing it was like once or twice a song. And so I had to figure out a way to you know, highlight those moments without strobing. And I, it's something I still struggle with, obviously. Like when they did the Anchor Drops album, mm-hmm. a lot of those songs were written in uh, all of those songs were written in an era 15 years ago where that was more common and now a lot of their songs are you know slower 4-4 four, four time or not as mm-hmm. um, proggy for lack yeah. of a better word yeah so it was a bit of an adjustment um, and, and one thing that I would do is do like that real slow moving thing when the band goes faster I try to go slower just because I ran out of places to go yeah um, so that was the biggest adjustment just the, the differences in improv so when you are doing a show, how much is programmed like ahead of time and how much do you, you know, like you said earlier where you're seeing things and you kind of adjust. So how much you're already like, you know, know where you're going with it and how much is on your feet? I, I like to describe it as kind of 100% both. Okay. I know that doesn't make sense mathematically, but I want everything to be perfect and it's hard to do outdoors yeah this this weekend is a bad example because I was fixing things each day because the lights that go on the stage get moved around in between acts and the trusses were getting moved due to weather and due to you know people want them at different heights for different sets but in a perfect world and a normal indoor show at a theater for example I'd get everything perfect right up you know till the end of sound check or till we have to give up the stage if there's an opening band or whatever and everything's perfect and I can walk in and just know that everything's going to be the way I left it because there's no weather to factor in or anything. Right. Excuse me one second. <laughs> but then the other 100% of the, the thing that you asked, right, about what is prepared and what is kind of happening on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
then I'm recalling all of the things that I've programmed or that I, that I have in the library of cues, which is probably over a thousand by now just because I've been amassing it since my days with Mo. Right. And so during the show, I have to think about where I stored all those cues over the years. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the best system. Everyone has different systems. Mine is very much the way that I run my own life. <laughs> Again, my poor fiance would attest because we, <laughs> we are complete opposites yeah. when it comes to the way we store our things. For example, like my sock drawer versus her sock drawer. That's a, that's a good analogy of like the way I run my lighting show versus the way that um, a traditional lighting designer, someone more organized, would run mm -hmm. their show. It works for me. Right. The well, same way it I works can, for you. I then. can find my favorite socks. Right. That's actually not true. I. You're always so, digging through, and that's I can never. Like. That's that's a horrible. <laughs> she's right all along. I can't ever find my own socks. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the husband thing. Yeah, because my husband can never find his own taxi. Okay. I think so. Don't feel bad. I think it's a. But I literally, I, I have like, you would think like, okay, put all the cues together that are similar, mm -hmm. and I do that in in some, you know, these are all the cool cues and these are all the red cues, but mostly it's scattered all about, you know, and it's just the way things have happened over the years, and I've tried reprogramming things in in an order that makes sense, mm -hmm. and then my muscle memory is shot, and I can't find things. You're saying you anyway. There's Adam yeah. Bunny. Another. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, hey, you're very welcome. Good to see you, man. See you, man. I like the new glasses. Thanks. It makes me look like I'm smart or something, right? Yeah. You are. Thanks. Yeah. See you, Red Rock. Be safe. Love you. Thanks, Art. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, where do you see the progression of lighting and doing shows in the next five to ten years? Well, it seems like video technology is greatly uh, enhanced every time, you know, like every six months or so. Yeah. Uh, lasers are becoming safer, so, you know, they're rated now that if they hit you in the eyes, they don't blind you. Right. I mean, that's that's only been in the last few years. I remember as recently as like 10 years ago, there was an accident at a festival somewhere mm -hmm. internationally where people had eye damage. I don't want to mess with that, you know, but now, right. now they have um, moving head lasers so that means you know n normally a laser you think of it as like an overhead projector you have to set it on an object and it shoots out you know mm -hmm. and it doesn't move it, it appears to be moving but really it's the laser that's moving not the actual physical light the way that our moving lights move but now that's different now they actually have a moving head so you can control the pan tilt because you're not worried about it hitting people in the eyes so that's a that's a really big step for like in my opinion yeah we used lasers once last year in denver and again it was because i could move them the same way i run a moving light so i could very easily integrate them into my show mm -hmm. and that's a huge thing because if you think about you know playing a piano that's kind of how i approach the, the console so i only have two hands and without completely rewiring my entire muscle memory and adding in like a if i had to have a laser console to my left or my right or in the old days, you had to have, uh, not even the old days, like two years ago, you had to have a, a licensed engineer hit the button. And in most genres of music, that's not a big deal. You know, they might use it for one song and the guy hits it on the encore, but for a band, you know, an improvisational band where you want to hit every little note perfectly and improvise with the band, you can't trust somebody else to hit the button. Right. So that's like an example of 
you know, you look at a band like, uh, or an artist like Pretty Lights, mm -hmm. you look at their light show or Bass Nectar, mm -hmm. those guys are just incredible LDs and they, or even uh, Johnny from the Disco Biscuits, mm -hmm. the way that they're able to run lasers now just as like another moving light fixture mm -hmm. makes it really seamless. So I, I think combination of video, lasers, LED technology, what, what Fish is doing with the moving trusses is one of, to me, and again, I, I noticed the nuance more than the average person, but I think one of the biggest leaps forward just because of the fact that you know, like you're, you're moving the source of the light in a way that has never been done before. I mean, that's that's really impressive to me. That was kind of mind-blowing when they, when they first started doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, I think that's everything I have. Thank that you so much. So that's all I have for this episode of the show. Anything referenced throughout this episode can be found in the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments about anything talked about in this show or any other episode, please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you guys, so please don't hesitate to contact the show. How you can do that is in the show notes as well. And thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you around these parts next week. Much obliged.